Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When we look at the world, intuitively, we betray Matthew's admonition against judgment, assessing and interpreting people and texts based on our presuppositions. Instead of seeing everything through the lens of God's teaching, we trust the lamp of our human eyes which presents the world to us in darkness. Thankfully, the preaching of John the Baptist made up entirely of God's words can't be seen. So no matter how flawed your vision, as long as you open your ears, there's hope. In this sense, the Lord's refrain, what did you go out to see, is ominous. You were called to hear, so why do you still trust your eyes? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 287 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about John's imprisonment for the cause of the kingdom, and we pick up today in verse 7 of chapter 11. As John's disciples are going away, Jesus takes the opportunity to speak. And one of the things you want to keep in mind is that what you see very often is misleading. Remember, we are receiving the teaching of the kingdom of the heavens. The teaching of that kingdom is at hand, but the kingdom itself is beyond our reach. You have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And please don't try to convince me that you can be perfect. Matthew is teaching us something about the function of Torah, about our backwards understanding of the kind of reward we should be seeking through the cause of the gospel. It has nothing to do with the very selfish, vain, and materialistic view of religious reward that has been popularized among Christians. This oversimplification comes because people approach it with their presuppositions. They come to Scripture assuming they already know what it says, and then they fit it in with how they already understand the world. They do this with the news. They do this with their boss. They do this with their wife. They ignore what the person is actually saying in order to get it to fit into their own head, into their own way of thinking. I mean, this happens in politics all the time. Now, when it's your own family, you need to listen. But when it's Scripture itself, when it's the teaching of God, of course you set aside your own thinking. You set aside your own way of doing things. You set aside your own presuppositions. Otherwise, you're not going to get it. It's only going to be a reflection of you, which is idolatry. You can't use what you see because 
like we read in the Sermon on the Mount. The eye is the lamp of the body. Your eye is going to project light onto that thing to make it look the way it looks to you. So you have to listen, but you have to listen correctly where the words come in and you depend on those words and you assume them implicitly to be true, even if they make you wrong. If those words undermine your way of thinking, that's good. If they cause you to panic, that's good. If they make you worry about how you understand the world, that's good. If they're upsetting to you, it's good because it means that it is breaking down the presuppositions that you brought to the text. So listen to the text openly, open-heartedly, with an open mind, that is, and allow the word to come in and allow yourself to understand what it's saying. And this is what Jesus is saying now at the end of the scene with John's disciples, because he's saying, okay, you assumed a certain thing. Here's how you need to understand it. This is how Jesus fights with the Pharisees. Oh, you think this, I'm going to talk about this completely other thing because you aren't even starting at the right point. And now Jesus is going to speak to the multitudes in a way that forces them to confront their presuppositions and set them aside so they can actually hear what John was trying to say. How do you contextualize what you see and what you hear? How do you contextualize the actions of others? Do you contextualize everything in the teaching of Scripture? Or, as you said, do you bring your own presuppositions That's the funny thing. We, as students of the Bible, talk about the problem of bringing your presuppositions to the text. But Matthew, in verse 7 forward, in the teaching of Jesus, is challenging us not to bring our presuppositions to everyday life. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? This phrase, Richard, a reed shaken by the wind, simply means someone who is weak, easily pushed around, they kind of blow with the wind. And so he's asking in this first question, did you plan to see somebody that gets blown around in the wind when you went out to see John? Were you looking for a wimp? Is that what you were looking for? What did you go into the wilderness to see? He's attacking them immediately. Wait, when you went out to see John, what were you expecting? He forces them to confront that question because if they went out expecting something, then they were not in the correct mindset to hear what John actually was saying. First, they had the expectation of what they were going to see, and maybe it was going to be, like you said, this wimp who just gets blown around by the wind. And secondly, it's what did you come out to see? He was teaching a teaching. Didn't you come out to hear? If you were in the right mindset, you would have come out to hear, not to see. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. If you're looking for a tough guy, you can't see John as a tough guy. Because in your mind, the tough guy, the king, the ruler, is going to be in a palace. So it can't be. What Jesus is emphasizing is that this is the kingdom of the heavens, meaning it's a kingdom that doesn't look anything like the kingdom that you think of. It's a kingdom without any substance you would assume a kingdom would have. It's a kingdom that's announced by a guy in the wilderness who maybe is more like 
a reed shaken in the wilderness than like your image of a king. But when you see a reed shaken by the wind, you're thinking wimp because you don't understand what this teaching means. You don't understand that the power of the one who preaches the word is not his physical appearance. It's not his biceps. It's the word that he preaches that makes him powerful. And you're not ready for this because you go out in the wilderness with your own presuppositions of what it's supposed to look like. And here in verse 8, unfortunately, again, the word ikos, which means house, this ikis ton vasileon, king's households. What are you expecting when you go to see John? Are you expecting the image of a Roman patrician, the paradigm of the Roman household, which is the king's household? Is that what you're expecting? You're expecting him to be dressed that way? What are you looking for? And then once again in verse 9, alati ex iltate idin. But what did you go out to see? It's a rhetorical device, a very powerful one. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. He's challenged your presuppositions about a prophet. And this makes a ton of sense to me, Rich, because people tend to be binary in their thinking. You hear the prophetic language and you go and you look for a king or a patrician. You hear the prophetic language and you think of it in terms of human weakness and defeat, stumbling over the cross. Now in verse 9, Jesus is telling you he is a prophet, but it's more than what you expect from a prophet. Exactly, Father. I mean, they come out and even the ones who are a bit more perceptive might say, ah, well, he is a prophet because he's speaking the word of God. And Jesus even undermines that. He says, no, 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 he's more than a prophet meaning that you don't understand the gravity, the truth of his words. You come out thinking you know even what a prophet sounds like, but when you think John sounds like a prophet, you're wrong too. You think he's like a reed? Well, you're wrong. You think he's like a king? Well, you're wrong. You think he's like a prophet? Well, you're wrong. Jesus is just undermining, undermining, undermining the presupposition so that the multitudes will finally, and unfortunately in the course of Matthew, and he never actually makes his goal, of getting them to listen. They don't listen. They impose. When Jesus says you were expecting a prophet, well, guess what? He was more than a prophet. Whatever you thought, you're wrong. And Father, you and I know we've had teachers who will ask us a question, and no matter what we answer— it's going to be wrong. The point of the teacher doing that to us is to let us know that even when you think you've understood my question, you don't understand the question. The feeling in verses 7 through 9 is you think you know what a prophet is. Well, guess what? Someone mightier than a prophet is here. It goes back to this notion of the kingdom of the heavens being at hand through the teaching, the teaching that you don't even know. And that's why every time you open your mouth to a wise teacher, he shuts you down because you don't know what you're talking about. You think you understand, but you don't. Let me explain what's going on in verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. What's powerful about this quote from chapter 3 of Malachi, it's verse 1, he's quoting the whole chapter, 
is that the entire section is about judgment. So you're looking at John trying to figure out who he is. You sound like a theologian. Who is John? What is his identity? You either sound like a theologian or you sound like someone playing contemporary identity politics, which is the same nonsense. You're trying to invent new ways to classify yourself so that you can find new ways to avoid accountability for your sins. And in the Gospel of Matthew, by invoking Malachi, Jesus is cutting through the baloney. All of your actions are going to be judged according to God's teaching, not according to your teaching, not even according to your understanding of God's teaching, but according to God's teaching. And so the messenger that's coming is the one who's saying, the kingdom is here, the judgment is nigh, the judgment is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is what John has been saying from the very beginning. By invoking Malachi, which I think is interesting because Malachi itself means my messenger, my angel, it means that the whole book of Malachi is about this message, and John is coming as the messenger who says the kingdom is coming. Whatever you thought John was or wasn't, whatever you heard, whatever you didn't hear, the most important thing is that he didn't come to give you some good ideas. He came to let you know that the kingdom is here and there's going to be a judgment. So it's time for you to get your act together. It's time for you to listen. It's time for you to set aside all your own ideas and start to submit to this teaching in order to submit to this God to whom you think you're faithful. In fact, your faithfulness will be judged by him, not by you. One of the interesting things with respect to Malachi is that in chapter 3, the people are posing the question, what good comes from following God's precepts? Because we look around, people who aren't following God's precepts are doing just fine. Verse 14, you have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Matthew, in his gospel, is addressing this sinful question with the proposition of a reward that is beyond your reach. You're looking for something materialistic, for something worldly. When you ask what profit is there in the gospel, you're thinking about it in terms of mammon which is condemned in this text. Matthew is challenging you to put stock in the reward in the heavens, which is not a materialistic reward, which is what we were alluding to at the outset of today's program. What is it that you want? Why is it that you think you're submitting to the gospel? How do you understand the cause of the gospel? Do you understand its cause in terms of your personal gain? as though you're dealing with the Lord like a corporate CEO. Let's do business. I give you this many hours. You give me a decent retirement. What is it you're asking of Scripture? What you're asking of Scripture, of course, Father, you and I both know, it's based in our biology. It's based in our own self-interest. It's based on our eyes. It's based on the logic of the world, which is, I know what a wimp looks like. I know what a tough guy looks like. I know what's practical. I know what'll get me where I want to go. And you follow that. It's very simple. I mean, you know, if you want to know who Caesar considers a prophet, Go listen to TED Talks. Those are Caesar's prophets. 
But if you think John the Baptist should be giving a TED Talk about the kingdom of heaven, it's not going to make sense, and he's not going to get very far. He's not going to get 5 million hits. Because what John the Baptist is saying is go straighten up and change the way you live. Change not only the way you live, but the way you think about life itself. What you consider life to be. Like you think is yours. It's not yours. There's not your life or my life, as you and I know, Father. There's only life. There's life before you. There's life after you. And you just happen to step in the river for a little while. And eventually you're going to step out. But the river is going to keep going. Your place in this world is so insignificant to the judge of the kingdom of the heavens. But to you, he's very significant. So you have to learn to submit to this teaching. You have to learn to allow your own presuppositions, your own thoughts, your own framework for thinking to be broken down by Scripture, by this teaching of the one who is going to judge us all. Earlier, Richard, John the Baptist from his prison cell asked if Jesus was truly the Erhomenos, you know, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the coming Lord. And by quoting Malachi, Jesus answers him in such a forceful way that those who are seeking something worldly, who approach God conditionally on the basis of earthly benefit, should feel threatened by. Behold, we read in Malachi, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. What an ominous text, what an ominous warning, that if you don't present the offering that is demanded of you by my teaching, I will put you through a test of fire. I will refine you. I will make you righteous. And that act of making the subject of the teaching righteous is not a comfortable one, is it? No, not at all. The priests who failed to do their job in Hosea 4 to teach Torah, to teach the correct teaching to the people, and ended up leading the people into sin, now God is going to have to come and purify those priests, and that day is not going to be a pretty one. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.